Hello and welcome to The Mission. My name is Ravi Gurumurthy and I'm the Chief Executive of Nesta, the UK's innovation agency for social good. In this episode, I'm talking to William Isaac, who is a senior research scientist for DeepMind, a company that researches and builds safe AI systems. As part of the ethics and society team, his work focuses on the fairness and governance of AI systems. William's research has been featured in publications such as Science, The New York Times and The Wall Street Journal. In this episode, we talk about AI and ethics. There's so much conversation about this today and how big firms like DeepMind can actually apply that in practice. And that's what William is trying to do day in, day out. We talk about things like algorithmic bias, danger of innovations being used for harmful purposes, and what we can do to actually democratize that conversation. William Isaac, thanks very much for, for joining us. I want to get into how we well, how, how you actually have ethical conversations about the use of AI and how you apply ethical judgments in practice. But before before we do that, perhaps we can root the conversation in what DeepMind is doing and some of the kind of breakthrough innovations that you're working on. I'm sure people will have heard of the recent breakthrough on AlphaFold too, but perhaps just paint a picture of the kind of things that you're actually involved in. I think as a team, I would say I don't don't, don't do it alone. I think the entire team that we have is, is has people from a variety of different backgrounds. And I think whenever you're developing really unique and, and, and innovative technology, there are always going to be a myriad of questions that come up about how to do this well, uh, making sure that it has the kind of positive impact. And obviously that, you know, the focus is on the, the breakthrough be the kind of pillar to like a lot of the longer term mission of the organ. So I think in that, in that essence, I think what we do day to day is primarily seeing what's going on with the research, thinking through what considerations do we need to kind of like consider, and then working with the teams to make sure that we're, we're having the positive impact that we want to have. And it's, it's, always a, it's always a kind of interesting for me because obviously uh, my background is not in machine learning. So I think, uh, you know, it's very interesting to kind of like see how teams kind of do this interesting marriage between lots of innovative technology. So we saw this obviously most recently with AlphaFold, um, but even for that, obviously with AlphaGo and even AlphaStar, right? You know, there are instances where team is thinking about, okay, how can we apply AI and computation to an area that traditionally doesn't see a lot of this? And then I think it's, and it's fascinating to see them pull the pieces together. And I think the part that I think the layer that we like to kind of add on is, okay, well, if, you know, this will likely be successful, what's the impact? What is the, the kind of broader kind of, the, what is the, what are the kind of ripples that will come off from this kind of big step change in, in capability? And so I think that's a, I think that's a really fascinating conversation to have. Um, obviously, you know, when you're doing it, well, I think what I've learned over the years is that sometimes you have a mental model of how things might work and then it actually happens and it's different from what you think will actually happen. And I think even that part is informative as well. So obviously part of it is going back and looking, okay, well, what, like, you know, our, our kind of way we thought about or how we approach the topic at one time period, does it change how we think about things in the future? And I think that's the kind of cool part about being on the cutting edge and working on things that are truly kind of like at the edge of innovation, because like, you know, there are not a lot of good analogies for what you should anticipate. So like every, every, every instance is a new instance. And, and I think that's, uh, I, you know, as a researcher, that's, that's kind of the dream, right? You, you, you know, to be able to see things come to fruition and then be able to say, oh, we're going to be taking on something new and it's different. And we'll have to continue to do that kind of like that balancing act of learning, but also, you know, paving a path itself. For our listeners, perhaps you can just say a little bit about, you know, what AlphaFold is, but then also how did you get involved in thinking through the 
the, the ethics of it. Yeah, so I guess for folks who are unfamiliar, AlphaFold is a suite of classifiers that are really designed to help uh, generate protein predictions. And so I think uh, for me, when it really clicked was thinking about all the types of medical conditions. So things like Parkinson's and other things that are at their core questions about proteins and, and protein structure. And in particular, I mean, it's a well-known challenge in biology, but like, you know, being able to kind of like anticipate and predict or understand the structure of proteins is really helpful to solve lots of different problems. And I think up to this point, up until AlphaFold, most of the computational techniques had had some level of predictive accuracy, but not level of predictive accuracy that would be like viable for doing the replacement of more intensive laboratory work that you see in other fields in, in, in biology uh, overall. But what I think what's interesting with AlphaFold is that you can now generate these predictions with pretty high accuracy. And that enables lots of different research and, and saves a lot of time for researchers who perhaps would have to do a lot of other much more both financially expensive and time intensive uh, methods to try to generate these structures. And so I think this is like really fascinating for kind of field of you know, multiple fields. So one is just like obviously just computational biology, period. But then beyond that, obviously drug discovery, uh, you know, thinking about kind of even downstream, thinking about like you know, therapeutic and treatments. I think there's a lot of things that could be possible now that AlphaFold 2 is at that point. And I think that's that's really, really exciting for us because I think it's it's really a cool instance of seeing how AI can enable other fields. And I think this is just a structure of like, where does AI fit in a, a current field? And I could talk about how I think other instances like facial recognition and other things have maybe taken a different route of where they situate themselves that actually leads to much more consequential ethical considerations. But in the alpha, alpha fold, right, it's a tool that enables other breakthroughs. And I think that's really cool. So so if you take that example, yeah. were there ethical dilemmas that you had to wrestle with? Or did you just think this is an unalloyed, clear, clearly beneficial innovation? I think the ethical implications, so an interesting kind of way in which you try to approach this question, because I think there are some instances where you obviously want to think, okay, well, is there representation? Is there capacity to kind of make sure that we have a lot of different kind of considerations on the front end? But I think there's also another side of it, which is a question about its end use. And I think I think the team and I think a lot of us, you know, DeepMind as a whole, put a lot of energy into thinking about, well, how can we use the breakthroughs in AlphaFold to have the most like kind of consequential impact and everyone i think did a good job so whether it's like partnering with do work on neglected diseases right you know open sourcing alpha to alpha full two in general and then more specifically right thinking about all the predictions they generated for researchers i think a combination that i think is really cool to make sure that at the end of the day that it's not just about making the breakthrough but ultimately how it's going to be used how it's shared I think those are really important considerations that are also part of ethics. It's not just like risk mitigation, but also how do you make sure you maximize the societal benefit of it? And I think both of those should increasingly be part of the conversation when we think about what is the ethics of developing a technology and what the responsibilities of the developers are. There's just such a history, isn't there, of innovations where they start off with one use, maybe it's military and GPS, but it ends up being something that helps people navigate around cities and, and, yeah. and or conversely if you think about social media now so it's really really hard isn't it to think about that end use question given how things are often quite unintended and, and they pivot a lot so yeah is that something you try to wrestle with and think well how could this end up being used or do you just always acknowledge that in the wrong hands this can be misapplied and therefore 
you know, you, you focus on just how you use it yourself as an organization? I think it's perhaps the trickiest question. Even just uh, with some, you know, kind of disaggregation, DeepMind primarily does kind of research, right? We don't have a lot of products per se. And so I think even like end use is, is different if you're thinking about, okay, I have a product and I'm thinking about the kind of end use. So social media websites are an example of this, but I have a product and it's like, how do people use it? And the use case are where the downstream implications might be. I think with research, it's even more open-ended because you you release a kind of like, general purpose application and there's a kind of like you know there's a kind of you know space of and and it does get tricky both the question of like to what extent you have control over the kind of like you know range of things that will inevitably be developed or built upon this breakthrough but then the second part of it is obviously like when you're when you're doing this right you're not alone you're not the only actor operating in the space so it, it is a it is an interesting balancing act to try to figure out where the line is, and then what controls you do have. And I think, I, 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 would, I would say AI is not the only field that has ever wrestled with this. Many other fields in sciences do wrestle with the same question. I think there are some, some aspects of it that are unique about AI. Obviously, culturally, I think computer science in general is just more open in terms of sharing code, sharing information. And so even part of responsibilities having to walk through and talk with norms about expectations around releasing code, how you do that, right? You know, what is the balance between as a science replication versus enabling use? And then these are all considerations you have to weigh when you're thinking, when you're ultimately trying to make a decision about what your responsibility is when you make a big breakthrough and how do you make sure you both facilitate more work, but at the same time, be a responsible actor. The field of AI ethics has massively taken off in the last five years in particular, it's probably longer, but in particular feels like in the last five years, huge amounts of focus on it but do you feel that when you look at you know the big companies like google and facebook and amazon and so on that ethical considerations are really being used to inform key decisions or is it you know kind of feel a little bit like window dressing no i do i mean i think it's gone through evolutions i think you made a really good observation which i do think that this field is still in its very nascent stages and i think everyone is trying to figure out how it works right and and so I think sometimes it, there's a balancing act, I think, in, in the sense that I think, it, so when I started working in this field, uh, I was kind of at the very kind of like frontier of it. And we were looking at criminal justice applications primarily. Even then, we were just like writing research papers, publishing them, and then going and talking at research conferences, right? The idea of having organizations or companies have in-house teams to do this stuff just didn't exist. And so even in this five years time, like, you know, some of the largest companies in the world have built in-house teams, have tried to integrate processes that fold this stuff in, and then how to actually, then there's the actual substantive question of like, what does it mean to apply responsible innovation and ethical practices into products? And obviously, as I mentioned before, into research, which is even a different kind of category if you're thinking about what considerations you have to kind of weigh when you're making decisions. And so... I think there. I think the good news is I think there is progress now. There's obviously been areas where it it just you know there's been missteps, but I think overall the field is getting to the point now where we kind of understand okay how do we balance this reality that you know when you're working inside an organization it's about trying to help facilitate the best decision making as possible and as well as doing a lot of innovative work 
to trying to support the technical progress made in other areas. And I think that's different than if you're operating outside of an organization and your goal is to kind of like foster the you know research in the public interest or foster kind of better policymaking. And I think both of those functions are necessary. And I think over time, those will get better and refined. I, I just think uh, the kind of level of... Uh, the, the level of responsibility versus the kind of like uh, the kind of like just even the progress is a little uneven. And I, but I think we're getting there. I, I'm 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 very optimistic that five years from now, I think these these systems will be much more robust. Organizations will have a much better understanding how they fit in. What I hope is that there'll be more more younger students, you know, professionals who have been well trained in this exact topic. Whereas for many of us who started working in this field originally, we kind of moved over into this field after working in other areas. And even just that subtle difference makes a huge like, like, you know, like difference in like how you approach the problem, how much time you can think about the problem and ultimately the breakthroughs that you might have. Yeah, one thing I think about is whose job is this and who's actually going to do it well. And it feels like there's an ecosystem here. You need obviously people within companies doing stuff, but you also need civil society and activists challenging companies because obviously mm-hmm. they're not going to ask certain questions. And you need political actors and politics to be more literate and engaged in these questions. So to yeah. give you an example, I don't know if you, I was reading this morning um, an article by Jonathan Haidt, the uh, the social psychologist about Instagram, and basically trying to argue that fundamentally the product itself, not you know not the not the algorithm or how it's designed, but the product itself has been potentially responsible for the growth in teenage depression amongst girls. That's the sort of thing where if you're inside Facebook or Instagram, you, you, you're not going to really challenge that because it's a, essential to the actual thing, but activists outside need to be able to engage with that and, and, and politicians need to be able to think about how to engage with it. But I guess my question is, you know, what's the right division of labor and what can you do within the system versus what can you do without? Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. I think there'll be similar functions that happen inside and outside organizations. And I think there has to be some structure of interfaces to, to facilitate this. And I think we've I think there's been efforts to try to cobble together this kind of like configuration in other spaces. So I think a great example, like from my from my prior work is in predictive policing. So uh, when I first started, we did one of the first external audits of like a predictive policing company. We replicated their algorithm and, and demonstrated that there was harms to communities that, that could be potentially there based on the way the algorithm was constructed. And I think in response, I think the particular target company in this instance, you know, basically kind of like, you know, refuted and then tried to do research that tried to counter some of the claims, but didn't quite hit the mark. But I think other companies have said, well, you know, what we should do is just open source all of our code and make it available. And in that felt like, okay, well, we're making progress toward this because obviously one of the main hurdles that you do when you're doing outside odds is that com- internal companies will say, well, this is not quite, you know, the kind of like exactly how we run things. And that's, that's primarily true. There's obviously proprietary things that companies do have that external actors don't have access to. So like, then there's a question of like, well, well what is the interface, right? Open sourcing is one of those, but I think there might be others that might develop. And I think this is where I think regulators and other policy makers need to step in because as much as civil society can advocate and push for things, I think really having ground rules for what the kind of ecosystem should look like, what, whose responsibility is to do this work, and then what are the kind of mechanisms for reporting and having changes actually happen? Because I think ultimately that's where that's where the that's where the most important aspect is. It's like where does where where how can we make mitigate the impact? We don't like I don't think anyone, even the companies, would wouldn't want the things they do to harm people, right? I I think. I think the question is, are we doing, when we say doing analysis, like, you know, what is a kind of like analysis that actually identifies these things 
And then ultimately, then what are the mechanisms for adjudication and mitigation, right? And I think that's like, I think we are still trying to get those right. And I think it's just, in my opinion, I think part of it is like, you know, putting a lot of responsibility in actors who don't necessarily have the resources. So you mentioned civil society, even middle-sized companies, they have large numbers of people. So at the fact, the Fairness Accountability Transparency Conference, we have numerous papers where individual researchers, research teams will try to go and do evaluations of company platforms. In those instances, I mean, those companies have numerous, right, engineers and people devoted just to that one single aspect of it. Like, I don't think civil society really has the research, research to the match. Oh, exactly. Because, you know, some often on AI ethics conversations, it said, well, we need to involve the community in some way. But I often think, well, you know, what does this really mean in practice, given the scale of the data, the enterprise that you're talking about? Can anyone really have the the capacity, even the computational power to actually engage with this? Uh, in some ways, I feel like uh, what participation looks like will vary. I think there are some instances. So like in the case of facial recognition, I think communities don't necessarily need to be involved in development, but they certainly should have a, a say on if it's used or not, right? Like, and then what are the mechanisms by which we evaluate what is important or not? So in many instances, doing impact assessments. And I think there's been a lot of work in this. And I think it's one of the kind of core outputs of of this, of kind of like the recent AI ethics shift is like, you know, are we doing proper evaluations of these systems? And then are the communities be given access to it to then make a sound decision as to not whether or not this technology should be used in their communities. But I think even before that, I think obviously the work around model cards, data sheets, and, and other forms of documentation are saying, well, what data are you using? What are you, how are you collecting it? Right? How, what is you know the intended use of things? Even before you get to the impact, right? What are the kind of core components? And I think these are the kind of things that you you could like state community stakeholders, impacted groups from these technologies, right? Or anticipated yeah. ones. Th- this is where they could step in. But I think even further the chain, there are also ways of doing it. But I think. There's a lot of innovation needs to happen there to try to do this kind of integration between the technical system, the technical system design, and where you would get community input and, and feedback in. And do you think, I mean, you know, going back to that Instagram example I mentioned yeah. before, should we be, you know, mandating the sharing of data with academic researchers, for instance, so they can do randomized controlled trials to understand whether exposure to Instagram, for instance, actually does lead to teenage depression? Is that the kind of thing that? we need in terms of openness? I think there needs to be some interface by which this manifests. I, I won't speak too much on the Instagram example per se, but I know there's like a lots of different companies who are trying to figure out how to do this balance. And, and I think part of it might be you need to have some standardized interface that allows or facilitates it. That on the one hand balances data privacy issues, but on the other hand allows access to be able to better understand where potential harms might be or, I mean, there could be other configurations that could work, right? That, I mean, it could be very easily where you have systems where things are open source and people could then test them in ways that are that are independent of, like, the actual live data that, that you know, a company has, right? I think there are different ways of different configurations. Obviously, I think the, the, the markup, the kind of, like, uh, trade publication, they've been able to do ways, you know, do experiments and do ways of analysis that have been very innovative. And so I think there are different ways of trying to get to it. I think one thing that would be challenging is that no matter what the method of interface, what are the reporting mechanisms that go back to the organization, whether it's a company or or a government that is using a system? And then what are the, the mechanisms by which or responsibilities by which those developers or, or users then have to actually address it, right? Because I, I think 
that's it's still not clear to me, even five years now, what the ideal way of those three steps look like. Um, and I think I think perhaps one of the better examples I've seen is like Zaib Obermeyer and Sunhill Mentaholland. Like they did some work uh, looking at algorithms in the healthcare space. And when they published their paper, they were able to, you know, they they worked with the developer to make those modifications. But it's rare that you have both the kind of like really high quality work that then gets translated into kind of reporting and then mitigation, right? So like that would be the ideal, right? Like, you know, but it really happens like that. And I think part, in my opinion, part of it is that you need to obviously have qualified people, people who are trained and can actually do this work well, but then also the other side of it, having the interfaces in, in, in the infrastructure to be able to do it, report it, and then do the mitigations. I want to take you back to, I mean, you've done some work on policing bias and criminal justice system work. That's a hugely controversial area. And I'm just interested in whether you feel there is actually a way of ethically applying AI in, in those at all, because it feels deeply problematic every time you know you think about a different use. But where did you land in your thinking on that? Yeah, yeah I think my landing, uh, my, my thought evolved, I think, over time. I think when we first started doing the work, I think, you know, just like the rest of the field, uh, I think you never, you didn't want to necessarily pass like declarative judgments about a technology. And I think even, I think I wrote a subsequent piece after the initial um, predictive policing paper that we wrote with my colleague, Christian Lum, and, and basically made the case that I don't think the concept is something that's like, you know, intellectually fraught, you know, it's just, you know, you need to think about the end uses and like, you know, even instead of like forcing it on what I thought, what I call like negative police use cases, but like thinking about instances of like, you know, distributing mental health care, right? Instead of like having police be always sent out, have other forms of care. But I realized kind of shortly afterwards that like, even in those instances, there's still a question about the degree to which you want to centralize administration of like social care systems, other forms of social welfare systems in 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 one part of lo even local government, right? In in policing as a kind of center of the interface between communities and, and government and local government. And so I, I think after that, I think it shifted. And I think obviously the, the recent debates around facial recognition, I think clearly show that even with a well-calibrated system, a system that meets specifications. So that's I think for, for you know for listeners who are not familiar, in the case of in, in the case of facial recognition, this was an instance where I think the initial concerns were about differences in inaccuracy between groups, right? So um, there's obviously the work by Timney Gebru and, and Joy Bolomimi who looked at this work in relation to um, the kind of intersectional uh, performance between race and gender. But even after companies corrected that, there was still a separate instance where the, the, it was about the misuse, right? So even if you had a well-calibrated system that met specification across groups, if they were using it, so the example I always give is like, you know, they, you know, there's lots of, uh, the NYPD decided they wanted to put uh, facial recognition in public housing projects, right? And these were predominantly uh, populated by non-white residents. And so in that instance, even though the technology might have been accurate across all groups, if you place the, the cameras in predominantly non-white neighborhoods, right, that's a form of bias that is separate from the performance bias, right? And I think that's actually where I think my thinking has changed a little bit in that I, I still think that in many instances, the potential misuse of them is a separate and distinct risk than whether or not it meets like a technical specification. And I think increasingly, I think the field uh, I think has is, is now like disaggregating those risks. So rather than saying the only risk we see is that 
there's a bias. So even my work prior, the, the, the risk is about the, the misspecification across groups. No, there's actually a separate part of it, which is that even if you have accurate specification, if it's, if it's misused in the wrong way, if it's still advancing harm towards, uh, towards some groups versus others, then this is actually also a form of ethical concern that is separate and distinct. And I think in many of those instances, I don't think that has actually been addressed. So I think that's why it's right. still, yeah. So rather than just in a rather sort of technocratic way evaluating the the ethics of this, you actually have to look at the context in which it's used and the, the ramifications of that. That's exactly right. I think even AI ethics is a field of study, um, you know, shifting in terms of the level of abstraction. So I think early work was very much focused on the algorithm, the, the model as the kind of target of analysis. And I think in recent years, we've now talked about as more of a socio-technical system where it, in, in many instances, you're thinking about both the balance of what is the kind of technical specification of the algorithm, but then also the kind of decision-making, the human decision-making is always a part of it. And then ultimately the end use in the context of the application. I think all three layers are really needed to have a rigorous evaluation, which I think going back to our earlier point, which is that even just having like API access to something doesn't necessarily give you a full sense of how something's being used by thinking about product versus merely just like, you know, like a system or a, you know, a, a machine learning model, right? And I think that's where I think the current thinking of the field is going. And obviously that's a lot harder in terms of an analysis to do than just looking at like the algorithmic layer per se. Got it. And, and just on the sort of actual technical side of things, I was reading something by DeepMind mm-hmm. actually about algorithmic bias and how the use of causal Bayesian networks can potentially mitigate this in some yep. way. Can you just explain that to us for a second? <laughs> well, yeah, well, as one of my papers, so I guess I, I think I, I think I'm a right to, to explain it. But um, yeah, I think, um, so one of the, one way of thinking of, you know, machine learning models in general, they are constructed around correlations rather than having, uh, you know, fixed structures of like understanding relationships and how data is generated. So, um, we call it the data generation process to be really wonky, but in, in essence, it's the question of like, you know, like there is some process, some stochastic process in the world, and now you have data that emerges from this process. And like, you know, you want to understand the kind of relationships. And so one of the ways in which you think about bias of the algorithmic layer, right, is that um, the, you have these correlations by, that are kind of undesirable between patterns. So obviously, like, it, you know, in the example we use in the paper, right, we look at like, you know, the kind of classic Berkeley, you know, uh, discrimination example where you see this kind of correlation between, you know, gender and admissions, right? And then this kind of is intermediate intervening variable about partner choice, right? This is the example where you might see bias in this instance, but it's not. But then there are many other instances like you see in policing where you see kind of like, you know, uh, correlations between, you know, arrest and risk scores, let's say in, 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 in you know, in, uh, in judicial system and the intervening variable is, is race, right? And so I think you could see like, you know, the, the kind of like both sides of it, where understanding the causal mechanisms would help you better under diagnose when it's actually an accurate, you know, a true case of bias against certain groups and when it might be correlated with other factors. So basically, yes, causal Bayesian networks are basically using a structure, uh, DAGs, is a directed acyclic graph as a way to be able to visually depict uh, the relationship between variables that you see in the data generation process. And so, you know, one example was the classic birthday example where you kind of had, you know, basically admissions decisions, gender that was uh, intervened by department choice, right? 
And then on the other side of it, what we see in the kind of, you know, uh, you know, predictive like risk assessment case, right? you see kind of risk scores and you see kind of, you know, like, you know, like arrests and then like what the, the core intervening variable here is race, right? And so in these instances... Yeah, know, just explain what's going on there. Just, just unpack it a bit more for me. Yeah, so essentially in, in each of these cases, you might have an instance where you might see a relationship between two variables and you might want to say, okay, well, is this connection accurate between the variables that I'm interested in? Is it causal or is it, it just a correlation? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. Is, it, is, it, is, it, is it causal or is it correlation? And what causal Bayesian networks allow you to do is essentially be able to try with, some, with, more, with more intentionality to construct actual relationships between the variables rather than actually assuming what we do in machine learning is actually just correlations, patterns of correlation between variables. And How I does think it do that? This, um, well, so essentially what it's doing is basically taking a, a well, not get too wonky, but a joint distribution across the variables, right? And essentially when you're constructing the graph, you're constructing joint like probability distributions between the variables. And by doing that, you're able to kind of then do some slight, you know, modifications to it. So for example, right, if you want to say, I want to compare like the treatment if, you know, if I were, you know, African-American versus white, right, if I were male versus female along the same causal pathway, that would give you a better understanding of like what the anticipated impact of this change would be. Now, I will say that after we wrote this paper, there was obviously a large discussion that we've had in the field about whether or not it's, it's, it's fair to make this kind of comparison as a causal analysis. I do think this is like, you know, put a huge caveat on this, right? Which is that doing this approach does not necessarily fully correlate to the experience of like being one of those groups and then kind of like moving into the other one, right? This is obviously we're doing this within the data, not actually in real life, what the effects might be. So there's obviously that balance that you have to strike. But in essence, this is a way, a, a more principled way of trying to measure and assess these impacts rather than actually just like, you know, saying we see two tables, we see the kind of comparisons, and therefore this is a then definition of it. And then, of course, we obviously make this connection to the broad definitions of fairness because taking this causal approach does have implications for how we define and measure fairness in this instance. Great, thank you. Just looking forward now, if you think about the ways in which AI is being applied now or in the next sort of two, three years that you think deserve more scrutiny, are there sort of two or three areas that you think are particularly underexplored? Underexplored in terms of uh, ways in which to do the analysis or underexplored in terms of like application areas that haven't received a lot of scrutiny? Yeah, I'm thinking more that, about the application areas that are just flying under the radar a little bit and are actually really material, but perhaps are not getting the attention they deserve. I think we often sometimes in this area mm -hmm. like to, to talk about the, um, you know, for instance, the question about a self-driving car and who is it going to, who should it save, which is super interesting if you're a philosophy student, but I, I, I don't actually think it's the most important question that we should be discussing right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of interesting discussion around like medical applications. I think, um, I, I think, and not for the obvious reasons, I, I think, uh, I think this, uh, I guess like maybe not to pick on this area in particular, but I think there's a kind of class of applications that are really, um, not just about the kind of algorithmic layer, but actually about the kind of human algorithmic layer. So like in medicine, this is obviously where you're seeing clinical applications. So it's not just about whether or not a system meets a specification, but actually understanding when in a clinical setting, what is the, the, the impact beneficially to of uh, using AI? And 
And I think there's a lot, there's a very interesting set of studies where they're trying to look at the kind of performance of, of a particular like ML uh, diagnostic tool. Um, and they were looking at the kind of like, you know, impact of clinicians and, you know, and, you know, the algorithm being used simultaneously. And obviously one thing that they noticed was that the predictions from the machine learning model were generally accurate, but, it, you know, but in usually in those cases, those are things that a, like a clinician can actually identify. Really where the value is for the AI model is in these kind of very rare cases. So even thinking about what does efficacy look like in the future it's not whether in like, so what we tend to do is just look at like general kind of performance over the rock curve and like, do we have accuracy in these areas? And like, and like what actually might be is like looking at very rare instances where humans likely won't catch it, but AI systems could. And that's a different level of kind of like of assessment than like in general. And I think so things like this are actually like, I think very fascinating to me because it's a, it's a difference in how we're constructing the question of what is efficacy of a, of an AI model look like. It's not full replication. It might be some, some hybrid between human and, and, and AI decision-making. But that was interesting in that that example you gave sort of inverts how I think about how AI is typically used in that yeah. it's probably good at finding, good at pattern recognition on the things that are high volume, but on the highly novel is where you think it, it it performs less well, but yeah, but that's but that's exactly the point. I think that's why I think up until this point, the way we've measured and assessed it is essentially like as a as an automation tool. And I think and I think basically, I think all the ethical questions that have emerged have come from this perspective of being a tool that uh, kind of facilitates automation. But what we realized in the session over the last five years is that there are also trade offs with that. Right, so obviously bias and mistakes in the data collection process and the algorithmic design can actually lead to wider scale harms. And so the solution is often to put a human back in the loop. But if we put the human back in the loop as a mechanism of accountability, as a way to re-augment re re the kind of like task, then there's a question of like, how do we assess and measure that kind of new configuration? Because it's not as simply as saying, well, if the goal of the, uh, of the AI is still to automate, right? In this case, it's like, the balance of the human, the human has some, some agency and autonomy here, right, to do, to, to catch identify in the clinician case, to identify some easy cases, right, then the AI system should be able to identify these more trickier ones. But in that instance, the bar that we level that we set for safety needs to be different. The bar level we set for bias has to be different. And I think that's actually where the challenge will come in some of these areas. But I think that's, I think that's a good thing, because I think, as I mentioned, this kind of evolution and balance of where we think AI fits in a socio-technical system is now evolving, right? It's not, we don't expect it to fully automate. And we wouldn't, I mean, I think we've kind of declared to say like, we don't want AI systems to fully run our judicial system. We don't want it to fully replicate our health system. So like, what does this, this balance between human and algorithmic kind of like, kind of, you know, uh, you know, methods of, you know, identifying a problem, you know, helping a, you know, an end user, what does that look like? Because that's actually the more likely the future than a fully automated world. And do you see, you know, that the interactions largely between being so individual clinicians, say, and AI, or are there interesting ways of thinking about how crowds of humans interact with AI? Um, I'm asking largely because, you know, yeah. Nesta does quite a bit of work on collective intelligence. Uh, my predecessor, Jeff Mulgan, was, um, you know, wrote a book called Big Mind on this. And it's something we, we think about quite a lot. Yeah, I, I think. I think one of the things I think that I think is just really interesting about working at DeepMind is all the different areas of research that we that we do, and and one of the areas that I've worked in, I've written a, a couple of papers since I've been here with my colleagues on the multi-agent team, is just thinking about like you know 
what does environments, what do tasks, what do scenarios look like when you have more than one human or more than one kind of algorithmic system at play? And I think this is really fascinating for thinking about questions of collective intelligence, collective action, you know, hybrid intelligence, because I think in all these instances, like the structure is very different. What success looks like is different. The role of which both the humans and the algorithm play will be different, right? If you can't have large groups of people that could you know, you know, weigh in, shift, alter the behavior of an algorithm. I think those are really fascinating. I think those are still like, they're still very early, early days, but I do think there's a lot of potential. I know even with our multi-agent work, we thought a lot about uh, how much of this can be useful for even the social sciences, right? Because as, you know, as a social scientist by training, there are many questions, theoretical questions in the social sciences that we just don't, we don't have the capacity to really answer, right? We don't have, we, we can't augment reality to, you know, you know, suit our kind of theoretical demands, but I do think you know the capacity to use multiple agents and collective intelligence, combining human and AI, that helps us better understand some of these problems in ways that we probably can't do now. And so I do think these are these are the things I think are on the kind of like cutting edge stuff. And I think even working through them in some of our papers that we've published, I mean, they're very fascinating problems, but they they are very difficult experiments to do in practice because there are so many different aspects of it that you kind of have to pull together. But I do think there these things are getting easier, right? And I think over time these will will these will be other tools that we can use as part of this kind of like algorithmic kind of like uh, kind of ensemble of tools. And I think a great example of what maybe like the future might be is like there was a paper by I think the Salesforce team um, that they kind of simulated different tax policies to see in simulated environments with multi with multi agent RL, like how like how would it change like you know behavior if you automated tax policies and could you derive optimal tax policies right by trying to like by letting agents operate and, and, and adjust the tax system. So I think I think there's cool things like that that help like economic feels like economics, feels like political science. I think that would be I think those would be really fascinating extensions of the work that we do. And obviously like they you know one thing that I think is kind of really funny about that paper is that they they had these well constructed RL models and then they ran them on humans and then humans human behavior completely diverged from what the agents were doing right so like one of the things that was most interesting was that they in you know in with artificial agents they didn't have a notion of private property right so they you know they shared and they exchanged resources when humans started playing the first thing they did was started building walls to protect the territory right which like like altered the kind of like structure of the game and what is purpose but like those are the things that we learn when we start mixing these different forms of, of agents into an environment. We learn a lot more about how humans diverge from artificial behavior. And that's useful because I think ultimately if our goal is to have better policies, a better understanding of theories and fields like social sciences, like this is stuff that's really useful to know. William, you've also written not just about you know the, the areas which need to be scrutinized, but ways in which we should go about doing it. And mm-hmm. you've written about sort of decolonialism and as a theory and how that can be applied in this area. And I thought what was interesting about that is it gets at the point about power and where AI entrenches or perpetuates power imbalances. Can you just say a little bit more about? Yeah, no, I think, you know, when we, so when I think, ironically, I think this paper started, I think uh, from kind of, you know, my work on predictive policing and, you know, kind of the, you know, kind of questions that we kind of talked about at the beginning where we were talking about like, well, you know, should this be used? Whose decisions this gets to be, right? And ultimately, uh, you know, one of the things that was a limitation to this is that it was primarily focused in the U.S. And so uh, my colleague Shakim Muhammad and I just started talking about this one day, and we started noticing that you know a lot of this, the kind of like end uses of like kind of 
algorithms, right? They're really designed as systems to just kind of like automate and kind of extend existing systems that were largely based on inequitable foundations, right? They were not systems that were designed to kind of support or create social mobility for groups. And moreover, that these same exact systems were being ported over from, you know, from different countries, right? Largely, uh, you know, largely were kind of based on foundations of colonialism. And so, you know, one thing that we wanted to do is we wanted to kind of like move a level back up and then say, you know, um, why haven't we, why, why wasn't this analysis done earlier? Why didn't anyone see the signal? And I think part of this is what we kind of advocate this idea of foresight, which is that, um, you know, a lot of the patterns about the end use of technologies are not ahistorical. These, they, these kind of patterns have persisted across time. So in the paper, we talk about even the introduction of kind of our modern research ethics, right? Part of the reason why we have like kind of consent and research studies, why we think about beneficence and the end use and making sure we avoid harm when we do research is in part because of the legacy that was done in the U.S. where U.S. researchers intentionally, you know, injected African-Americans with syphilis and, and basically did not tell them. And like, and I think that kind of like unethical practices basically prompted the U.S. government to intervene and actually redirect right, the way in which we do research, right? And even then, just like we see in AI research now, people say, well, why do we need this? This is not needed, right? This is excessive bureaucracy. But now we look at this and this seems completely sensible. And in some cases, right, it's not actually, it doesn't fully cover the scope of it, of what we, uh, ethical considerations in research, which is why even now we're talking about it in the context of AI, right? And so, right, so these things are not ahistorical, right? But I think being able to have frameworks to help you communicate that, which is, I think, the whole point of the decolonial uh, paper was the idea of saying, okay, as a framework, we need to think about foresight. But the way in which you think about foresight needs to be based in this history. And when you do that as an exercise, you can see there's a lot of kind of what seem to be unrelated patterns and uses that actually make a lot more sense when you put them together, right? And so the example we talked about was obviously you know, if you look at kind of like child welfare systems that were being used in the U.S. that are uh, the ML based, right? Their origins actually happened with the Maori people in New Zealand, right? And so, you know, they kind of focus on like trying to actually design systems primarily with a focus on indigenous or underrepresented communities is not something that is just localized to the United States. But I think we tend to ignore those those aspects of it. And if you're just focusing on the algorithm, you don't see that. Why are we why are we continually using these systems on the same groups and basically with the same issues where there are men using them in countries that have lax or very lenient privacy laws, right? And then moving them over into other countries. We see a lot of these patterns in different areas. And I think the kind of full picture scope of this it paints a very like concerning picture about how we should responsibly develop systems, right? And what are the responsibility of actors to take action? And then there's, I think, the other side of it is like, how do you educate and enable communities to be part of this conversation and making sure that they're they're equal stakeholders in the development of these technologies? And I think that is actually something that I think the combination of the two starts with our with, you know, internally, you have to do as a as a, a responsible actor, you need to be doing these reflective exercises and saying, okay, how are we doing this? Can we do this better? What are the harms that we're producing? Not in the end use but also in the construction of the system. So I think one of the examples we talk about in the paper is actually instances where, you know, you might say, I want a fair system, but then you go into countries 
that have very lax laws around privacy in Af in Sub-Saharan Africa, right? And then collect these images, right? In the pursuit of something like fairness, if you're exacerbating other like human rights to do that, that is in itself is an unethical practice, right? And so I think in these instances, we really have to do this reflexive exercise. Like, okay, if we want to achieve this goal, how do we do it in a way that actually through the whole life cycle, right, actually brings stakeholders along? And I think the hope is that, you know, the kind of though the impact of the paper is that it helps spur and catalyze a conversation that wasn't happening before and putting together and knitting together examples that I think maybe people might say, okay, data annotation practices are bad, right? You know, focusing on, you know, just bias in the algorithm is bad or just that, you know, you have problematic use cases are bad. But if you put it together, that's a life cycle of development that routinely and consistently harms a subset of the of, of our of our populations and, and groups in crop in countries. And that should change. And I think hopefully that is let the message that people take away from it. And that this is not this is not just a one-time analysis. You can do this too, right? The the tools of foresight and using these tools are not exclusive to us. And I think everyone should take in part on that if they're trying to develop AI systems responsibly. I think we've given a, a, a lot of reading for our listeners to, to dig into after this podcast, um, William. Can I just end with asking you about what's the one thing that you think governments can do on this agenda that we've discussed and also technology companies? Because I think, you know, when we were just discussing just now, you, you talked about the different actors within the system having to play a role. And I, I'd just love you to sort of say, what would you prioritize? Yeah, I, I think I think for each of the respective actors, I mean, I think I think governments are starting to do this already, but I think really actually getting a good understanding of like where the kind of research is now and then like, you know, and trying to do their best to try to create the ground conditions for kind of successful kind of like norm setting. I think, it, you know, you know, in a lot of cases, it's not just about setting definitions. It's about the kind of whole pipeline, and I think I think I think I think governments are doing that and should continue to do that. I think in terms of industry, I think I have a litany of things, but I think the I think the top one is I think the you know working on the life cycle, right? I think in many instances, right, it seems like we have a pattern where bad things happen, and then companies try to react and do better. And I think some companies are earnest and trying to do better, but I think the best way is to shift these things upstream, not downstream. And I think having practices that, and especially as we talked about, integrating other stakeholders, it's much easier to do that when you're developing a technology than it is after a technology has been released and you've already manifested some harms in the world. And I think for civil society, I think they perhaps play the most important role, as I think educating both the public and I think also playing an active role in creating the spaces for accountability. I think like civil society has primarily done this. And I think Ultimately, I think they will. They, they, I think their direction is going to be most pivotal in kind of making sure we knit together these coalitions in a way that leads to positive change. So I think each of these stakeholders have a role to play, and my hope is that basically creating the norms and regulations, and then allowing and creating more upstream rather than downstream kind of tactics, I think will inevitably lead to safer systems and more socially beneficial systems than the kind of current dynamic that we have today. William Isaac, it's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on the mission. Thank you. It was a pleasure. <laughs>